Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and this morning we pray that it all be, about, it'd be all about you. It'd be about you, Jesus, that we would focus our hearts and our attention on you, Lord. And we're thankful we can gather here, and we sang such great songs of praise that focuses on your, your love and your grace and your mercy that you showed us, Lord. And we just praise you and thank you for for that, Lord. And Lord, we come to you now as we open up your word and we pray that we'd make it all about you. Lord, that you'd use your word to speak to our hearts and challenge us to be more like you. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word that communicates to us very clearly how we can have a right relationship with you, how you desire us to live our lives and the hope that we have for the future. And Lord, we are so thankful for your word. And Lord, we just pray that we would listen to its voice this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to talk about uh, the prophet of justification. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Romans chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first uh, 11 verses there in Romans chapter 5. And, and as you're turning there, I read an article this week about Apple. Apple just had the most profitable quarter it's ever had, and it also had the most profitable quarter any company ever had. It made $18 billion in the fourth quarter of 2014. $18 billion. Just to give you a little perspective, that's $8.3 million an hour of profit that they made. Now, when I look at that number, it's kind of hard for me to kind of fathom what that number is. It's kind of hard for me to, to kind of wrestle. That's astonishing. I, I can't really wrap my head around those numbers. And I'm sure you're like me, that if someone's willing to give you that amount of money, you'd be willing to try to understand how much $18 billion is. I think we all could say that we would, we would certainly give it our best shot. Um, uh, but $18 billion, that's a lot of profit. That's an incredible amount of profit. But this morning, I want to talk about another type of profit that's even greater than $18 billion. It pays out a, a, a greater eternal payout, so to speak. And that's the profit of justification. And, and we've been looking in Romans, and we've been talking at see what it seems like forever about justification. In Romans 3, the, the end of, of Romans chapter 3, we've talked about the process of justification. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's God's divine decree where he decides to forgive our sins, and he declares us righteous in his sight. And so that's the process of justification. In the last few weeks in Romans 4, Pastor Dick has, has gone and shared what Paul was saying. He's giving us some, some personal examples of justification. The life of Abraham and the life of David and how they were justified by faith. Gave us some personal examples. And now in, in Romans 5, 1 to 11, Paul shares the amazing prophet of justification. And the first prophet of justification that we see in these verses is justification provides peace with God. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins and he says, hey, because believers have been miraculously justified, they've been made right with God through faith in Christ, we experience some benefits. And the first benefit of that, of, of our justification is we have peace with God. 
Now, if you read through Scripture and through the New Testament, you'll notice that, uh, that Scripture mentions two, ty- two types of peace with God. Uh, two types of peace when it comes to God. There's peace with God and peace of God. Both come from God, and they're both gifts that he gives to believers. Peace with God, which we're talking about this morning, is peace that, object- that is objectively outside of us. It comes because Jesus has settled the score and paid the price for our sin at the cross. It's something that God has done for believers through Christ. It's outside of us. It's objective. It's complete. The war between God and believers is over because of the work of Christ. There's no more hostility because sinners can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, and so that's the peace with God. But Paul also talks about having a peace of God. And this is kind of subjectively inside us. It's the experience of peace that Jesus has secured for us. And in Philippians 4, Paul talks about the peace of God as this calm and satisfied heart in the midst of trouble and pressure. And so the peace of God is a fact because of the work of Christ on the cross. And if we put our faith in Jesus, we go from enemies to, 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 to friends. It's a fact. And the peace of God is a feeling based on that fact. And Paul says here, we're at peace with God. And he's saying, believers, we're no longer the recipients of God's wrath. We're no longer the recipients of God's wrath because of sin. Between God and sinners, there exists a state of animosity and hostility because of sin. And we saw that in in the beginning of Romans, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, that there was this hostility, this sin that separated us. And for, for believers, the death of Jesus satisfied our debt of sin and sets aside the resulting hostility so we can have peace with God. We are no longer in rebellion against him, but we've been reconciled to him and rescued from his wrath. And that brings peace. It's a fact. We have peace with God. We are no longer subject to his wrath as believers. We've gone from enemies of God to part of his family through faith in Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. The state of war that exists between the unbeliever and God continues until a state of peace is declared. And having been justified by faith, we have a peace treaty with God through Jesus. We are at peace with God. We're no longer at war. We're no longer enemies because of justification. And it's nothing that we did in in and of ourselves. It's all God's love that he showed to us through Jesus on the cross. We have peace with God. God made peace with sinful man through the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus produces peace. He is our peace. He's our peace. We have peace with God. And so one of the very uh, first prophets of our justification is we are no longer enemies. We have peace with God. We're part of his family through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the first prophet. The second prophet that Paul talks about in, in, in uh, Romans 5, in verse 2, it says, we have, 
access to God. The second profit of our justification is we have access to God. It says, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. So not only does Jesus produce peace, he provides us access to God. Now, in ancient times, no one had access to the king, right? You just couldn't like walk into the king's quarters and into his throne room and, and, and approach the king. If you approach the king without an invitation, you risk your very life. It was perilous to enter his presence without permission. You needed an invitation to approach the king. Here in America, we don't have a king, but we have a president, right? And for those of us who are 18 years of age or older, we have the opportunity to place our vote. And the president will gladly take our votes, but you know what? He won't take our meetings, will he? Uh, if you call, try to call up the White House and say, hey, you know, I'd like to have a meeting with the president, they say, good luck. They just laugh at you. He, he's not going to take a meeting with us. And we know um, it doesn't work out real well if we try to go to the White House uninvited. Omar Gonzalez, in September 2014, scaled the White House fence. He ran across the lawn, and he made it inside the front doors of the White House before he was stopped and arrested. Because why? Because not just anyone can approach or have access to the president. No one could just go up and, and, and say, hey, I'd like to see the president. No one has that approachability or access to the present. But here Paul says believers are invited to approach God or they have access to God because we have been justified by faith in Jesus. Our justification, in essence, provides us with an all-access pass to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've gone to a lot of different conferences and things like that, and they usually give you lanyards. And on the lanyard, they usually has your name, and it has maybe lists, you know, what, what uh, seminars or things you're attending. And then there are those people at those seminars that have a different type of lanyard. You've seen them. And they have their names, and they have this word, all access. And then you watch them, and they can go wherever they want. They can go backstage and, and, and talk to the presenters, and, and they can go wherever because they have all access. And because of our justification one of the benefits is we have all access to God. We have access to him. Paul says in, in Ephesians 3.12, in him and through him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And the writer of Hebrews says this too, then let us approach the, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because of God's grace, because of his unmerited favor, we can be justified by faith, and our standing has changed. We go from a rejected enemy to a welcomed friend, and now we have access to God. We can continually go to God with our requests, with our problems, and with our concerns, because through our justification, we're not his enemy, but we're his friend, and we have permanent permission to enter his presence through prayer. And I don't know about you, but that it's pretty encouraging, right? So no matter what we're going through, we don't have to face any trouble alone, but we have the freedom and the confidence to go to God at any time through prayer and, and, and share with him what's on our heart and know that we don't have to go alone, that he is there to help us through the difficult time. 
And so as believers, we, we have this access to God that we can go to him and we can share our burdens and our concerns and, and know that he is there to help us and he listens to us and he's at work in those areas and he's helping us through it. And think about it, for the unbeliever, they don't have that kind of access. They don't have that kind of access. God is even more inaccessible and unapproachable than the king or the president of the United States. Their sin separates them from God, and so they don't have access to him. They can't run to him in prayer and, and communicate with him on a daily basis and, and, and enjoy a relationship with him. But we have all access to God because of our justification. Because we've been justified by faith. And that's such a great, great prophet of our justification. But I don't know about you, but sometimes it's a, it's a prophet that I don't always use. Because when things are going well and when life is going great, what happens? In my life, I kind of get an autopilot. And when things are going well and, and, and everything seems to be going great in my life, then I kind of get independent of God and kind of do my own thing. And, and then when something happens, when, when a trouble comes, then I'm reminded of my dependence on God and I can go to him in prayer and, and seek his face and confidently approach him. But as believers, every day we have access to God. He cares about what we're going through. And we can approach him and commune with him through prayer. That's one of the great prophets of justification. And finally, the, the last prophet of justification is God provides the hope of the glory of God. At the end of verse 2, it says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, biblical hope isn't the same as hope as we think about. Because when we think about hope, we think about wishful thinking, right? I hope. I, I, I really hope it comes through. I, I really hope. Yeah, it's kind of wishful thinking. But in, in a biblical sense, hope is a certain expectation. It's a certain expectation. For Christmas, Dan and I purchased tickets to the Chris Tomlin Love Ran Red Tour here in, in uh, Hershey in March. And, and I received a ticket, tickets in the mail. They're at home. And those tickets provide me hope certain assurance that on March 19th, when I go to the Giant Center, I will have seats for that concert. I, I, it's, a, it's a certain expectation. And that's what hope is when, when we see it in the Bible. And Paul, and Paul says that believers who are justified by faith have the certain expectation of experiencing the glory of God. And the glory of God, which we've fallen short of, which we saw in Romans 3, is the perfect standard of Christ's righteousness. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 said, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And as justified believers, we have certain hope or, or the expectation that one day, not only will we be with him in heaven, but we'll be like Christ, perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. This week on Tuesday, I got a, text from my dad and said that my grandmother wasn't doing well. Said so she was pretty unresponsive. And so Tuesday I left and I went uh, to Millersburg uh, Tuesday afternoon to, to spend some time with her. And when I came to her room, I found her to, to be totally unresponsive. She only opened her eyes once for the, uh, the three hours that I was there and she was shaking and she just, she just didn't look good. And so I just sat there for a few hours and I just held her hand. 
She's 95. She's the last grandparent that I have, and she's probably one of my, uh, probably the closest grandparent that I had. She's, she's a godly, godly lady. And I sat there as I was held in her hand. I, I was just praying. I was, I was praying, God, if it be your will, would you, would you heal Mimi? But if not, take her home. And I could sit there and pray with hope, with a certain expectation, knowing that she put her faith in Jesus Christ, she was justified, and that if she would, would die, she would be with him in glory and be like him. And remarkably, she has bounced back and, and made a recovery. That 95-year-old lady that I love dearly is tough as nails, and, and she's still around. But I could sit there and I could pray that because I know for a fact she has hope. She has the hope of glory. That if she was to die, she would be with the Lord. And Paul said in Philippians 3.20 about believers, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We have hope that one day not only will we be with Christ in glory, but we will be like him. We will be like him. We'll share in his glory. And that's exciting. That should, that, 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 that's a prophet that, of our justification that we cannot forget about. In our imperfect human understanding, it's impossible to understand the greatness of the glory of God. And nevertheless, we are promised that we'll one day only not observe God's glory, but we'll share in the glory of his divine holiness and majestic perfection, perfection forever. It's hard for us to understand, but God says, you know, we will not only, not only be with him in glory, but we'll share in his glory. We will be like him. And so Paul starts off here in, in chapter 5, and he gives us the prophet of our justification, that we have peace with God, that we have access to God, and that we have the hope of glory. And those are great things for us to, to think about, to, to realize that these are things that, that benefits of being a believer that we have. And then he goes on, and he shares some, some proper perspective about our justification, and the first thing that he says that if we're going to have a proper perspective of our justification, we need to first embrace suffering. We need to embrace suffering. In verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on and says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. What's your view of suffering? Did you ever think about it? Last weekend, I thought I was suffering. I was working in my bathroom. The seal of my toilet, uh, my toilet was leaking. The seal was bad, and so I had to pull the toilet. I had to replace all the molding around, around the, the, the toilet, put a new seal, and, and reinstall the toilet. And early on in the process, I cut my thumb, and I cut my pointer finger. And everything I did, it hurt. Every tool I picked up, it hurt. And I was frustrated because it hurt. It was taking longer than I thought it should, and, and it was just miserable. It was miserable. In my own mind, I was suffering. It was not fun. And then that same day, I saw real suffering. And we saw 21 Egyptian Christians that were killed, beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ by ISIS. 
But as believers, we don't, we don't talk a whole lot about suffering. We don't think a whole lot about suffering. And Paul says here in Romans 3, but we also glory in our suffering. And when he says this, he speaks not as a spectator, but he speaks as a fellow sufferer. We glory in our suffering. Paul, Paul suffers. He suffered long and hard in his life. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 9, uh, we see Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded to that when he said there, in verse 10, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul suffered. And he says, we need to rejoice in our suffering. For when we are weak, then I am strong. Paul practiced what he preached. He rejoiced in suffering instead of complaining about them. And John Piper said this about suffering. So as we look at the role of suffering and afflictions in the Christian life, keep in mind that they're only tests to your faith. They could be tribulations from the loss of health or tribulations in broken and strained relationships or tribulations in in vocational hardship and disappointment, or tribulations and accidents, or natural disasters, or tribulations in verbal and physical assaults, or simply everyday inconveniences. Anything that makes life harder and threatens your faith in the goodness and power and wisdom of God is a tribulation. I read that a few times and And help me to understand suffering is anything that makes our life harder and threatens our faith by getting us to question the goodness of God and his wisdom. That's suffering. Anything that that gets us to question the goodness of God and his wisdom. And we don't talk a whole lot about suffering, but Jesus talked about suffering. And he told us we will suffer. In John 15, 8, he said, If the world hates you, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And in verse 20, he goes on and is telling his disciples, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And then in, in Matthew 5, 10, in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Paul again talks about suffering in 2 Timothy 3.12, probably not a, a memory verse for many of us, but he says this in that verse. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's pretty clear. But somehow, we don't like to think about suffering a whole lot. But suffering is the trouble Christians face for following God. And when we suffer, for Christ's sake, it shows that we are living Christ-like lives. And Paul says, an amazing thing. When suffering comes, complain, right? 
Is that what he says? When suffering comes, run. He says, when suffering comes, rejoice. This isn't being a masochist, finding pleasure and pain, but it's recognizing there's a divine rationale behind suffering. There's a divine rationale behind suffering. Suffering can be productive if we positively respond to it, not in bitterness and anger towards God, but if we embrace it. And he goes on and tells us why suffering is important. He says suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance is patient endurance. It's the ability to continue and follow God in the face of strong opposition or obstacles. You don't develop perseverance if your life is always good. Perseverance is developed in the difficult times. And perseverance is something that's important. It's something that's important that we have. Perseverance is is that patient endurance. And perseverance produces proven character. And during the tests and trials of suffering proves that we have purity or maturity of our faith. It's proven character. It's proof that we are genuine in our, in our faith and following Jesus. And he says, character produces hope or confidence in God because the God who is shaping our holiness in the present suffering can be relied on to make us perfectly holy in glory one day. This week, someone sent me a video clip about suffering. And they said, I've been wanting to send this to you, and so they sent it to me. And I'm like, it's amazing, because this is kind of what exactly I'm talking about this week. It's a, it's a, it's a clip of, of a pastor giving a, a message. His name's Britt Merrick, and you need to know the backstory. He's talking about suffering, and he recently lost his eight-year-old daughter to cancer. She had three or four bouts of it and finally succumbed to it. And I want you to, to watch and listen to what he has to say about suffering. Watch this video. It's about a minute or two. When we suffer in this lifetime, we need to keep a few things in perspective. Number one, Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things, even the worst things, together for good for his people. We need to keep that in focus. And if we're unable to see that, if we're so struggling with our difficulties that we we can't possibly see or think or imagine the good that can come from it, then we need to keep this in perspective. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory we shall see. As difficult as it gets in this lifetime, we have the promise and the hope of eternal life with Christ. And the worst horrors that we can imagine in this life are not even worthy to be compared with how wonderful it will be to be with Christ. Not worthy to be compared. And we cling to these things, and I'm clinging to these things right now, that God is going to work good in this lifetime. And that these things someday shall pass, and they won't even be worthy of mentioning in light of seeing Jesus, I believe it. So what's our view on suffering? 
whatever difficulty we may face, eternity and glory is so much greater than that. See, in my view of suffering, I have often mixed up thinking. Because oftentimes I think if God loves me, he won't let me suffer. But Paul reminded me this week, because God loves me, I will suffer. And it's for my good. For when I am weak, he is strong. Suffering. We need to embrace suffering. We need to have that perspective. Another perspective we need to have is we need to experience God's love. And, and Paul goes on and tells us the two major things in these verses that tell us God loves us. First of all, it's the Holy Spirit. And in the end of verse 5, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom, he, whom has been given to us. This is Paul's first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And he says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul lets us know that the Holy Spirit is a gift to all believers at conversion. When we put our faith in Jesus, not only are we saved and justified, but we're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to pour out God's love into our heart. The Holy Spirit constantly makes us aware of how deeply God loves us. Now, we just celebrated Valentine's Day here in the United States. And for many of us, People all over the country express their love to, to significant others, maybe through flowers or, or, or special gifts or, or dinner out or, or something special, chocolate or something like that. And Valentine's Day is a great day to express your love to that special someone in your life. But if that's the only day that you ever expressed your love to your spouse, they'd start to, to wonder, Right? Like, you only care about me one day out of the year. That you only, you only express your love for me one day throughout the year. It's much better to do everything we can on a daily basis in, in any way we can to express the love to, uh, that, that we have to our spouse so they know, hey, I'm loved, I'm cared for. And see, that's what God does through the Holy Spirit. He consistently communicates his love and care for us. The Holy Spirit lives inside us, and it consistently communicates to us that he loves, that he cares us, cares about us, that it's there to help us, to help us understand Scripture, to help guide us in our decisions. It's, an, it's, it's proof that God loves us. And the other proof that God loves us is the cross of Christ. And in verse 6, you see, it says, You see, at just the right time, while we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For, while, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The cross of Christ is a demonstration, it's, it's evidence, it's proof of God's love for helpless sinners. And the essence of God's love is giving, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. Paul says at the end of Galatians 2, 20, the, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Love is communicated through giving. Love is communicated through giving. 
And the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the receiver. It's measured by the costliness uh, uh, of the gift to the giver and by the worthiness or the unworthiness of the receiver. And if we use these standards, then God's love for sinners that is committed, that's communicated through the cross of Christ is the greatest gift that has ever been given. Because we look at the costliness of the gift and it's evident. If you have kids in elementary school, you know around Christmas time, uh, you get a note or an email from a teacher saying there's going to be a gift exchange, right? And they set a $5 limit and it just drives me crazy. Number one, because I'm cheap. And number two, because what can $5 buy? What a value can $5 buy? If, if you get something and, and uh, $5, you know, it's pretty much breakable, forgettable, and disposable. It's not something that your kids really wanted or needed. And if, if your kids are like my kids, there's this junk drawer in their room. And you open it up, and it's overflowing with all this junk that's worthless that they got in situations like that. The gift didn't cost anything. It, it didn't cost anything. But in Romans 5, 6, and 5, 8, Paul tells us the gift of our justification. It wasn't worthless. It was costly. It cost Christ his life. It cost him his life. God sent his only son to die on the cross for us. God's immeasurable love is demonstrated by Christ dying for the totally unrighteous, the undeserved, and unlovable mankind. Paul says in, in, in Romans 5, 7, he makes it clear that as humans, we place a great value on our lives. And in only in special circumstances we, would we show the highest form of human love and sacrifice our life for someone else. And if we were going to do that, it would probably be someone that we really care about, a spouse, uh, uh, one of our children, or maybe even a good friend. But here in Romans 5 through 8, Paul tells us this amazing thing. That God loved us and he sent his son to die us even when we hated him. Even when we hated him. He sacrificed his life for us. God didn't wait till we performed well enough and to merit his love. He acted on it before we could ever earn our salvation. Christ died for us while we were still alienated from him. And he, when we cared nothing for his attention and his affection, he sent G Jesus. The, the, the costliness of the gift is evident, and the worth, worthlessness of the recipients are also evident. Look at these words that describe sinners. We're powerless. We're helplessly sick. We're weak. We're unable morally. We're ungodly. We're irreverent. We're wicked. We're profane towards God. He says, we're sinners. We've departed from the way of righteousness. We've fallen short of God's perfect standards. We've disobeyed his divine command. We're enemies. We have deep-seated hostility toward God. We resent his authority. These aren't great descriptive words when it comes to people, are they? I mean, these aren't, you don't want to be known by these descriptions, and that's what Paul says we are. We don't deserve his love. Mankind was rebellious to God's ways. Ungodly sinners were completely unworthy of God's love. And yet Christ died. And the benefit of this gift is excellent. 
Our justification is a past decision that provides uh, a present dedication and future deliverance. Future deliverance. Our past justification, God deciding to forgive our sin and declare us righteous by faith in Christ, gives us present security and confidence in Jesus that he will in the future save us from experiencing God's wrath. And so we, we have this excellent benefit. We didn't deserve it, but it cost Jesus his life. He loved us. He gave us this great gift. It's amazing. And find the last perspective is this. We need to express joy. We need to express joy. In verse 11, it says, Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received reconciliation. It says, We boast, we publicly proclaim our joyful confidence in God that because through Jesus we have received reconciliation. And reconciliation simply means our relationship has changed. It's a change in the relationship with God. We go from hostility to harmony, from conflict to peace, from friend, from enemy to friend. Our relationship has changed. And so as followers of Jesus, we can express joy because of our relationship with God. We can express joy because of suffering, knowing that God's using it to develop our faith and our character now. And we can express joy because of our hope and certain future in heaven, that we will one day spend eternity with God. We will be glorified. We will share in his glory. We will, and, and it'll be amazing. So we rejoice. We rejoice not only in our final home, heaven, but we rejoice even now through the difficulties of this life because God loved us so much. You know, believers are supposed to be the most joyful people on the planet because our joy isn't based on our immediate circumstances. And as we gather here this morning, some of us might have had a great week that we're rejoicing in, and some of us may have had a lousy week. But the reality is if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can all rejoice today, whether it was a lousy week or a great week, because, first of all, in the difficulty, God is maturing us. And also because of our faith, we know that we're just passing through. We know that one day we will be in glory with him. These are great verses. There's so much truth in these verses and, and so many things. And I encourage you to, to read them again this week and ask God just to reveal truth to your heart and encourage you through them. But as we, as we close today, this is my prayer for all of us. This is my prayer. God, help us as believers to recognize the profit of our justification and remember to have the right perspective because we're justified. Lord, help us to remember that we have peace with you, that we have access to you, uh, that, that we have a hope of glory, and help us to have the right perspective, to embrace suffering, to experience God's love fresh and anew, and to express joy. That's my prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have just to to look into it this morning and, and just look a little bit about your great love for us. And Lord, these verses are so powerful and so amazingly rich of just your amazing love for us. But Lord, they're also just 
full of amazing truth, especially as we talked a little bit this morning about embracing suffering, that you love us so much that you allow us to go through difficult times so our faith can be strengthened and matured. Lord, thank you for the profit of our justification, and Lord, help us to have the right perspective. Lord, help us to embrace suffering and, and navigate through suffering well, that honoring you as we, as we walk through the difficult times, knowing that you work everything together for good and that you're at work in our lives. Lord, help us to embrace your love for us in a fresh and new way. And Lord, most importantly, help us to express joy. We have so much to be joyful about. We are saved from the penalty of our sin, from the wrath that, that we deserve. We, we have joy because you didn't abandon us. You've given us your Holy Spirit that pours out your love into our lives day after day, guides and directs us. And we have joy because we know that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And that one day we will be in glory with you forever. And that will be amazing. But Lord, you have us here and now for a reason. So let's make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen.